Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome our faithful listeners to another exciting episode. Today we have some of the folks that you've already met, Dr. Richard Hankins, Sarah Stream, Kate Tyner, and a special guest, Rebecca Martinez. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, Thanks, Dan. So um, again, my name is Rebecca Martinez, and I am one of the infection preventionists here at Nebraska ICAP. I'm a registered nurse of about 12 years, and for the past 10 years, I've been working kind of in this public health realm. Um, And I really started that realm in employee health, working for an acute care facility. Then I worked at the state of Nebraska in the immunization program. And then I've been at an acute care facility and was an infection preventionist there um, during the COVID pandemic before I recently joined Nebraska ICAP. And I'm very excited to be on your podcast today. Thank you. You know, we had an interesting question that was left on our voicemail. And again, I want to emphasize, if you leave a voicemail with a question, we don't automatically use it. We will contact you and receive your permission, if you would like, uh, to display or to uh, present that that question on air. Uh, So today's question has to do with a vaccination, but not the vaccination that you've been hearing about in the news. Uh, So let's play the question. Hello, I recently heard that I should be looking at my employee's hepatitis B vaccine status. I thought it was required for everyone when they went through clinicals at school. I was just wondering if this was something I should be checking. Thanks. All right. So we want to once again, thank our caller for uh, presenting us with this question. It's a great question that um, I think Rebecca probably knows a lot about, right? Hepatitis B requirements and some different vaccinations that we should be looking at for our employee safety. Yes, that's correct. So that question that the caller asked is is very common. So yes, you do need to look at your employee's vaccination status, in particular hepatitis B. What makes hepatitis B, you know, super important is because OSHA requires that if you are going to have a job um, that where you are reasonably anticipated to be exposed to blood or body fluids, that you need to be offered the hepatitis B vaccination within 10 days and that, you know, you be offered the vaccination, you know, free of charge. So yes, um, during their clinicals, um, you know, these students should have had their hepatitis B vaccine, but you still need to assess that and you need to document it. And if for some reason they declined or they've never had it before, this is a great opportunity for you to talk about hepatitis B, how transmissible it is, even in the absence of visible blood, how it can be transmitted within seven days, you know, on a dried surface, and how it's really important that they do get vaccinated, and you can always give them that other opportunity. Um, And this is a great point, too, to kind of talk about how really, you know, hepatitis B in Nebraska is required for us to go to kindergarten. 
right? So everyone really should have been getting that, that vaccine. And as time goes on, you know, babies are getting that within their first day of birth. So they really should have had those series. But in those um, times where you're going to have that reasonable anticipation to be exposed, such as, you know, maybe in this dental profession, you really are to have that documented series and have that lab titer or that lab work that says that you're immune, which will really help guide um, should you have that unfortunate event of being exposed at work. So yes, you need to check. And yes, you need to follow up for various reasons. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, you know, we've established that hepatitis B is, is required by OSHA. You need to track that in your employee health records and make sure that everybody has at least offered it in your practice. But I also wanted to touch a little bit about other vaccines and uh, shed a little bit of infection prevention light on those and how we can look at those as a strategy for mitigation of disease spread within your practice. I have to say, before we started all this, I was wondering, what are we, what do we mean by mechanism of vaccination as a mitigation strategy? Because <laughs> I don't, I don't quite know what that means. Like, I think that's a good question. I mean, and I, I think that's a good question for any caller. Dr. Hankins, that, you know, when you think about the ways that we can prevent something bad from happening, um, we can have people wear PPE, right? Um, and if we're wearing our gloves all the time, then we shouldn't have a reasonable um, chance of getting uh, blood on our skin. But if you had a needle injury or a sharps injury, your glove wouldn't protect you, right? Because you could get poked through your glove. And since we're working in dental, you think about we're working in that tiny space where we can't see that's a great chance to get a percutaneous injury. So gloves won't be like the only strategy we could use in dental. And I think we could use safer needles. Um, but there's times where um, clinicians don't choose those needles or just bad stuff happens. So I think in infection prevention, we like to use like a layered approach, right? So you want to layer up a bunch of things that protect people because hepatitis B is extremely transmissible, right? Of all the bloodborne pathogens, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and HIV, Dr. Fadul had said in the past, that's the big one, right? That's the mm -hmm. most transmissible bloodborne pathogen if we have that bad luck of getting exposed at work. So I think when we talk about keeping employees safe from like an infection prevention perspective, it's again, engineering the safest practice. We're gonna put vaccines in place. We're gonna put gloves in place. We're gonna teach people to have safe techniques. Um, so I think that that, is a really actually a great question, Dr. Hankins, and I'm glad you asked it. And Thanks, I agree Kate. with that 100%, Kate. That sounds great because what we want to do is we want to eliminate the hazard, right? So we want to make sure that vaccines, they're given. Um, the vaccines are, are better. Um, I like the term vaccines better than immunizations, right? Because vaccines come in and they come into your body. Your body identifies something kind of foreign. And, it, and really simply, it just builds these antibodies, you know, these mechanisms to help, you know, quickly be enacted so that you can fight that, those um, germs off, right? So um, we want to have that vaccine with um, where it can be a, um, a weakened kind of antigen or it can be something that's already killed, you know, and so you don't have that disease burden to worry about so that when you are exposed, especially in your workplace, you know, you are not going to be, um, you know, someone who's going to be giving it to others. So it's great to kind of prevent infection, eliminate the hazard um, in the first place, rather than relying on all of those other kind of downstream measures such as PPE. I think you make One thing I just wanted to ask, touch on, because I feel like we've kind of mentioned several different ways of doing this. And so I just want to clarify for myself, but also everyone else. 
Um, so we talked about we have to offer, we have to document offering it, but we also have talked about documenting the vaccine and also titers. And so I feel like that's three separate things, but what do employers have to show? Do they have to show that they've offered it? Do they have to show that the vaccine has been given or do they have to show titers? They have to document that they've offered it. Um, and so then you would have that documentation um, either of the vaccine series, which you already have, or a declination form from the employee. And that's what would be you know, requested if OSHA were to visit your facility. Um, I know we've talked about hepatitis B vaccinations and employers have to offer that and they have to pay for that. Um, do you know anything about the labs or the titers that would need to be drawn? Do employers have a responsibility for that part of it? You know, they do. And so I'm glad that you asked this question because it gets, you know, a little complex because, you know, recommendations have changed over time. So if I can kind of start back, you know, hepatitis B, um, the vaccine is so important, right? Right now, um, you know, babies, you know, when they're in the hospital, that's the first vaccine they get, you know, at birth because it's that important. So, you know, many of us have already had that vaccine series, you know, as infants, um, as toddlers, or, you know, we've already had that vaccine series, you know, as we're getting um, our healthcare education. So um, looking at that vaccine series um, is part of OSHA you know, an OSHA requirement. And around the time of about 1997, the recommendations from CDC changed. And they really said that if you are at high risk for being exposed to this blood or body fluid, that, you know, the recommendation is that after you complete that series of hepatitis B vaccine, about one to two months later, that you get that lab draw or that titer that tests your blood to see if you are immune. Because that's really important so um, that you know that you're protected at work. Um, hepatitis B can be transmitted easily. Um, it can remain viable or able to be transmitted, you know, up to seven days in the absence of visible blood, et cetera. So, and it's important that you know that should you ever have that known exposure to blood or body fluids. So um, after 1997, you know, OSHA kind of reverts back to, you know, your CDC recommendations. And so um, it is recommended that you do that tighter if it's been a period of time. Um, after the vaccine series has been completed, such as if you had it in childhood and those type things, they really refer to that to that CDC guidance on if you should titer now. Um, if your if your lab comes back negative, then you are recommended to have that that secondary series. And so there's really some helpful resources out there. Um, one of the most helpful resources that I have is through the Immunization Action Coalition, which has some fantastic clinical tools um, and some handouts that really explain this complex situation and what um, employers you know, should be doing. Um, also do know that in the time of exposure, so you have an employee who's had that, you know, that needle stick or that splash to that mucous membrane, you know, if you don't have that titer already, you know, the employer is required um, to do that in a timely manner and, and, you know, pay for those, pay for those tests. I'll tell you as a practice, many employee health and occupational health facilities will, um, as you are onboarding, they will test your blood to see if you're immune so that they have that. So that A, they know 
um, that you can practice, you know, more safely in your profession, but also they have that information readily available should there be an exposure. So with that initial titer that's drawn on employment, can they use that as a baseline if you do have an exposure? Yes, yes, they can. And I think that this is really um, something to talk about the importance of having your vaccination records. And it's not just your vaccination record, it's your lab work records as well. So I'm a big supporter of making sure that we take that personal responsibility to have those, you know, vaccine records, including, you know, lab results. And as we know, as we talked about, your vaccines, you know, for many, for many of us, you know, start at birth or they started in childhood. So really making sure that we get those vaccine records from our parent or guardian, that we're keeping them um, from the source, whether we get our vaccines at the health department or our primary care provider, um, that we're keeping that and that also knowing where you can get other vaccine records. What would an employer do if your employee can't find their hepatitis B records? Like, you know, say they moved from another state or maybe they got it 25 years ago and they can't find that little card. Um, I know there are a lot of systems in place. Rebecca, do you want to highlight some of those systems where we could find that information? So you can get um, other vaccination records through your state immunization information system which in Nebraska is Nessis, N-E-S-I-I-S, which is the Nebraska State Immunization Information System. So I will say it won't have a lab result um, stating that you are immune to hepatitis B. It's not, it's not formatted in that way. Um, occasionally it has some options to indicate that you're immune you know, to hepatitis B, but it's a really great start um, for other vaccination records. And if you've lived you know, anywhere in the, in the United States or its territories, you know, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, et cetera, you know, all of these locations have an IIS, an immunization information system. So, you know, go in, um, try to access your records. Um, they're kept, you know, um, with, with encryption and they're adherent to privacy regulations as well, but keep those records and then, you know, keep your lab values to bring with you when you are going to um, school or you are going to an employer, because then that can be used as a baseline, as we talked about, and you don't need those additional, you know, lab draws, you know, that's never pleasant, right? And you won't need, you know, shots, um, you know, that that you are not, you know, that are not necessary. And overall, it helps um, keep your employer, um, you know, kind of keeps their cost in control by not giving you certain treatments and, and um, you know, medication that isn't needed. And um, it really just helps make your onboarding process faster. Awesome. And you brought up a really good point in that too, Rebecca, about possibly looking back at your past employers. So OSHA requires that you, um, as an employer, keep medical records for 30 years. So if you worked for an employer five years ago, you should be able to call them and they should still have your medical records that might include your vaccination status. So I think that the you guys are making really great points about how you could look up vaccination. And um, I want to go back to the original question of the caller, because um, the caller said, shouldn't people have had this vaccine as a requirement of their training program? And so um, when we were talking about this offline, I remember Sarah made a really great point about dental practices, that not all the people who practice in the dental environment went through a training system right? So you think about your office associates, dental assistants, right? 
um, or people maybe who are older who went through programs before requirements were in place, right? So it's important that we can't um, abdicate the idea of having to look up those things because we shouldn't make assumptions about people's safety. That's a really good point, Kate. Yeah, anytime you have a new hire on, you should always um, either request their records and make sure that you're offering that vaccine. And if they haven't had it yet, make sure that they uh, go in and get it or fill out that declination form. And it's important to remember too, the licensure requirements for uh, certain professionals vary greatly across state borders. So um, there are certain states where dental assistants do not have to be clinically trained. And so those individuals may have not had the opportunity to get that vaccine. And I think also um, there's a lot of conversation about vaccination currently. And it's reasonable to say maybe if a person declined the vaccination in a former life or a different uh, job, that they might be more apt to listen this time. And I think as advocates of um, healthcare worker safety, we should offer that and do explaining um, and care for our coworkers um, every chance we get. Um, the other thing is, I think this is a unique um, a unique instance because we know that a lot of dental facilities are um, very small businesses, right? So what if your facility doesn't have the bandwidth to do the vaccination on site? Um, are there places you could contract with to like provide these services for you? Hey, I think that that's a fantastic question. So the answer is yes. And I love how you're talking about, you know, really looking at your employee um, and talking about them, um, you know, in that this is always an opportunity for them, you know, to make the choice, you know, to protect themselves and others by, by receiving the vaccine. So um, yes, some of these small businesses, they may not have the, the services to, you know, vaccinate um, on site. And so there's occupational health groups that you could look at, um, you know, your local hospital, you might have, you know, a relationship with them where they could receive the vaccine, but also know that um, we've have the Affordable Care Act, right? And so that's really important that for free without co-pays, you know, we have this preventative medicine benefit and that includes, you know, immunization. So, you know, really we should be receiving these vaccinations, you know, early, you know, during our childhood. Um, and then there's some that we receive, you know, in adulthood as well. Um, but really, you know, know that that's a benefit for any insurance that is um, compliant with the ACA, and that includes, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, et cetera. So you can receive those services for free at your doctor's office, at a pharmacist, you know, and, um, and that includes some options. And I think another resource, just like, uh, I'll go back to what you were saying, Rebecca, you had a really, that pharmacists can um, offer vaccine. And so if you're an adult and you maybe don't have a primary care provider or, um, you don't want to go into your doctor's office for a work reason, you can actually usually go to like a chain pharmacy and look at their immunization services. And like you're saying, under the Affordable Care Act, that would be low cost or no cost that um, you could, as a probably provider, you might um, collate some of those resources. And then as part of orientation, you could offer that to employees of here's some different options that we've looked into for you, or again, contracting out with um, an occupational health provider. Uh, so, you know, we are talking to other um, IPs in the, in the dental area that may have, uh, you know, some individuals that remember shows like ALF 
and other things. And with that, you know, they were probably around a little bit and before. You are aging yourself. <laughs> yeah, everybody appreciates like Alf Alf. references. Um, so, you know, some of these individuals may not have had that initial vaccination. Then what do they do? They just try to uh, catch up. Gosh, that's a great question, Dan. Um, it, and so just to clarify, you're, you're saying so if people miss the pediatric series that they should get really before 18 months of age, what do we do um, later? Is that what you're yeah. kind of wondering? Yes. About? So I'd say people should get a series when they're an infant and the series ends at 18 months. So I'd say if you are older than 19 and you haven't got a series, we should just go ahead and give you a hepatitis B series. It's not like you would need two separate series, but that's a great question. Gosh, I really love how you brought up this question because, you know, the advisory committee on on immunization practices, ACIP, you know, makes that, they have that congressional authority to make those recommendations for the U.S. population. And these recommendations have changed over time. You know, I'm going to be real with you. I am the big 4-0, you know, I am 40. So what was recommended back in my childhood is different than what is recommended, you know, for, for a baby that's born, you know, today. So, um, and with that, over time, vaccines have developed. There are many, many um, hepatitis B vaccines that have been used in the past and that are being used, you know, currently. Hepatitis B vaccines, they have, um, you know, specific vaccines that just have hepatitis B components. There are many combination vaccines that have hepatitis B components, and that's a good thing, right? So it kind of overall results in less shots, you know, that we're giving, you know, um, you know our infants and toddlers and children. So um, additionally, we have certain vaccines that have been used that have had hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Um, with that, it's, it's complex. So um, there's different brands. Most are interchangeable. Um, they have different age indications. They have different dosages, whether it be, you know, 0.5 milliliter or full milliliter, and they have different schedules. So depending upon the brand, some schedules are a two dose, some um, and most are a three dose, and some are a four dose, but the help is there. Um, I really would, would um, highly suggest a resource that I use all the time from the Immunization Action Coalition. They have those clinic handouts and those resources that talk about hepatitis B vaccine, all the different um, vaccines um, you know, that, are, that are in there, you know, including your combination and those that are mixed with other vaccines, the dosages, the age indication, and the schedule. So when you're assessing records, I would use that handout to make sure that you're assessing, did this person in front of me receive an age-appropriate um, completed hepatitis B series? And do note that if they're in the middle, they've received, you know, two out of, you know, a three-dose schedule, we're not repeating that schedule. We're just giving them that additional dose to finish it up. That's a really good point. So if you've started the series, but not finished, you don't have to restart the entire thing. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what about um, getting another series if you get a lab draw and your titers come back that you're not immune? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad that you bring that up. And so that really comes into play, you know, when we're, um, you know, working in our health professions, you know, such as dentistry, right? Because, you know, you're exposed to blood and body fluid there um, at a level that's, you know, a higher risk than some other professions. So if you have received a series and your lab come back, comes back not immune, right, then you are um, indicated for a second series. And so you would complete that series. And then one to two months later, you know, you would have your lab drawn, you know, to really make sure that you're immune. Sometimes, you know, despite, you know, having a full, you know, two, two series, two completed series, there's a small percentage of employees that just don't respond. But um, if your primary series was given like in childhood or many years ago, right? And now you're having that lab draw. Um, You may have been protected, but your circulating antibodies, you know, may, may not be there. And so um, out of an abundance of caution, you know, the, the CDC recommends that second series to make sure that you really do respond, um, you know, or, um, and that you've really built up that immunity for a future exposure. Yeah. um, I know Kate brought up a little bit of information earlier about, um, you know, using all of our tools and a layered approach as far as infection prevention. So this is where it would be really important that your practice is really focused on those standard precautions, wearing your PPE correctly, um, you know, making sure you have the correct eyewear, using all of your mitigation strategies, because if you do happen to fall in that very small percentage of employees that are not immune, to hepatitis B, that takes away one of our layers, right? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you and Kate have brought that up. So when we look at our inverse triangle, if you will, the most bang for our buck in our hierarchy of controls, how we you know, are really reducing risk to keep everybody safe is first and foremost, eliminate the hazard. Right. So, you know, vaccination is key to that. You know, we can by vaccination, we can prevent these vaccine preventable diseases in almost all cases. So um, then it's not circulating. And so, you know, the disease is, is high, high risk. The vaccine is, you know, low, low, low risk. Right. So we're kind of substituting this risk and we're making that that choice, you know, to vaccinate not only ourselves, but our workforce. Right. As a primary infection prevention measure. Right. So, you know, we also, you know, use um, controls, you know, other controls, making sure that, um, you know, when we are, um, that we're cleaning and disinfecting appropriately, you know, for all of our patients to make sure that um, for the equipment um, and that our disinfectants that we're using, that we're cleaning and disinfecting in between patients using a disinfectant that, you know, has a kill claim, you know, against these bloodborne pathogens, you know, such as in this case, we're talking about hepatitis. Hepatitis B. And that final control is personal protective equipment, which is highly, highly important, but it's kind of one of those fail safes. We definitely want to use that PPE as standard precautions, um, including eye protection and gloves to make sure that we have that barrier and that we're not just relying on, you know, our, our intact skin, you know, to be that, to be that last barrier. It can be the difference between us, you know, having a communicable disease and us not. So it's that layered approach, all those different safeguards to help protect us. And 
hand washing, you know, let's not forget about hand washing. That is incredibly important, you know, to help prevent um, the transmission of, of diseases and making sure that we have um, good hand integrity and we're keeping our skin intact on our hands. So very much a layered approach is key to infection prevention. And within that layered approach, a high priority is vaccination. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really important to remember also that even though we have that layered approach and we're using standard precautions and we're using our PPE, there's always the possibility for that glove to tear in the middle of a procedure. And, you know, having all of those layers, all of those safeguards, right? Vaccination being one of them. Um, I'm not going to lie. My glove has sworn in the middle of a procedure, in the middle of something where I could not stop what I was doing and change it right away. You know, I had to wait a few minutes for, to finish whatever we were doing. And it was in those times that I was really happy. I was vaccinated. Um, you know, hepatitis B is just one of many communicable diseases, but it is that, that layered approach and that extra safeguard. Oh yes. And I think that's great that you bring up something else that I wanted to talk about. So having been an employee health nurse, you know, for several, several years at an acute care facility, I would say one of the saddest, um, most heart-wrenching experiences that I repeatedly had was, um, you know, those needle sticks, those exposures to employees. It just creates this, um, this, you know, level of uncomfortable of, um, you know, them being uncomfortable and, you know, really kind of having this anxious moment, right? And so it involves really assessing, you know, have you been vaccinated? And if you haven't been vaccinated, you know, that's a key, you know, there's nothing we can do about it like right now, you know, but if you just would have made that choice, then it would have had, um, it would have been a much easier exposure, you know, to handle. Right. And so, um, and actually, you know, we could certainly start getting you vaccinated now to have some level of protection in that, in that exposure, but prevention is really key. Um, Another thing is to make sure that there's times that we've had, you know, double exposures where unfortunately, um, you know, a suture needle has come through on someone's glove and then it's kind of gone, you know, back into the patient. We, we definitely, those are the saddest cases. We want to make sure that we're communicating right away, stop the process, um, that we are not, you know, taking that exposure that's happened to ourselves and then exposing, exposing a patient to because what if you had hepatitis B, you could have given that, you know, to a patient. So it's really important that patients and employees alike are vaccinated um, against vaccine preventable diseases. So Dr. Hankins, would we, if a person doesn't know if they've had the vaccine or not, they don't necessarily need to go to infectious diseases physician, right? That nope. could be, what, could that be like a primary care doctor? Would you that could be go to your primary health? care doctor and say, hey, I'd like to check my hepatitis B surface antibody. It's like, it's a standard of care. It's something that lots of physicians know about. So um, we've talked a lot about hepatitis B and OSHA. Um, are you guys familiar with like, if a, if a dental provider was, you know, blowing the dust off their employee health policies and they really wanted to examine what vaccines in totality should a person have who's working in healthcare in dental, uh, where would they look for that list of immunizations? 
So they're going to go to the ACIP schedule, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They're, they're set, they have this congressional authority to really make those recommendations, you know, for the, for the U.S. population. So they have that for childhood, they have that for adults, and they also have it for healthcare workers. What I think is important, you know, for healthcare workers is that it's your, still your same immunizations that are required, you know, in childhood, right? So, you know, hepatitis B, your seasonal influenza, your MMR, your chicken pots, your Tdap, and then meningococcal vaccine. Meningococcal vaccine is, is a little special in that if you have some lab workers, you know, that are working, you know, that could be exposed to Neisseria meningitidis, then, you know, they would be recommended to have those meningococcal vaccines. And there's a couple types, you know, out there. So I think the most important thing, vaccination for healthcare workers, is to remember that they're, that they're humans too, right? And so we just want to make sure that they're up to date on their routine immunization schedules, both um, from their childhood, if they didn't have those vaccines in childhood, that they're caught up and receive their adult immunizations as well. And that's on the ACIP website. And you can, you can um, just Google that. So with hepatitis, um, I, I, I don't know that much about it other than I know I don't want it. And, you know, vaccines generally, you know, I mean, you, know, you can look at the, the flu versus COVID versus um, all of these others. The effectiveness of the hepatitis B vaccine, it's my layman's understanding that it's pretty darn good, that it does a, a really good job of, of uh, protecting. Uh, is that true? Yes, copy that. Mm-hmm. It does. I would say that's true, Dan. Dan, and just for like, uh, so we're using words precisely. You say, I don't want hepatitis, but all you said just then was, I don't want liver inflammation. I think we're, we're talking about viral hepatitis. And so I, I don't know. I think pretty yeah. much all of it. I, I think I was, I was accurate on the, I don't want hepatitis. <laughs> Okay, so I am just curious. I know we've talked about the hepatitis B vaccine, and I know there are multiple different types of hepatitis. Uh, Dr. Hankins, would you want to maybe highlight some of those and how we can protect ourselves? Yeah, so there's um, there's multiple different types of hepatitis. So we when we think of hepatitis B, um, similarly to hepatitis B, we often think of hepatitis C. So both these are uh, blood transmission. Um, as well as hepatitis D, although we don't really think of hepatitis D isn't as prevalent. Um, and then outside of that, we often will hear about A, hepatitis A or hepatitis E, which are both um, transmitted by fecal oral routes. And so we don't necessarily think of it as much in a healthcare setting uh, as we're talking about um, blood transmissions, but hepatitis A and E are, are also um, possibilities. And on that note, I think that vaccines against um, hepatitis, we have vaccines for hepatitis A and vaccines for hepatitis B. And what's really special about them is there's so many brands. And so, um, plus over time, you know, we've had some vaccine brands that were used and that are no longer in, in existence, right? That were a combination of hepatitis A and hepatitis B. So when you're reviewing records, it's really important that you look at those brands and that you look at what types of vaccine um, 
you know, that they were for hepatitis A um, and or hepatitis B, and that you look and make sure that they were given um, age appropriately. For example, there's some adolescent schedules um, where, you know, a, um, a larger dose is given, um, but for the hepatitis B, it's a series of two shots instead of three. Um, typically, hepatitis B is given in, in three um, different doses, and we want to make sure that with the different ages, they switch in adulthood to, to kind of larger doses. So it is a, a bit complex. The great thing about the Immunization Action Coalition is it has a fantastic handout that talks about all the different vaccines that contain um, a hepatitis B component, the ages of indication, the doses, um, the number of doses in the series, and then the dosage um, amount. So I think while we're on the topic of employee vaccination, um, I just wanted to uh, touch a little bit on the importance of influenza vaccination on a yearly basis for healthcare employees. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yes, very important. Every year for everybody, six months and older. Yeah, awesome. Every year. Um, and I, I'm a person, you know, if you've ever had actual influenza, it's terrible. Um, and uh, in, in the acute care environment, um, Dr. Rupp was our medical director and every year we would, um, we would kind of beef up the people who were giving doses of influenza vaccine on the units. And so Dr. Rupp would do these kind of coaching sessions where he would get together with the champions who were offering the vaccine and kind of answer questions for them and talk them through, you know, like how the vaccine works, et cetera, so that if people ask them questions, they would be ready. And I remember as part of one of those um, annual sessions, he talked about um, pregnancy and he said at least every year he has worked with a patient who lost a pregnancy because of a severe influenza case and how devastating that is. And, you know, that's just one of those things that, um, you know, when you talk to providers who care for patients all the time, it, it, there's some really sad stories about these circulating illnesses that are entirely preventable. And so um, it's really important that, um, we recognize that influenza is something that hurts people every single year, and it's a vaccine that's so easy to get. I'm a person um, working at a big medical center. It's easy for me to do it at work, but it's even easier for me to do it at the grocery store or um, like Target when I go shopping. And so it's so like you just turn around and you could get a flu vaccine. And I usually wait till I get like a $5 coupon or some kind of incentive. And then I go to that place so that I um, kind of give myself a reward when I get my flu shot. So I think it's something that um, the provider in a clinic is often a person that people respect. And so, you know, you think about as a champion in your clinic, um, being ready to talk to people about influenza vaccine and encouraging people. Um, I think sometimes people don't know the weight of their words. And just for a person that people respect to say, um, yeah, I think that's a good vaccine. I think everybody should get it. It carries a lot of weight. So I think that that brings up a good point too, Kate. Um, I, I hear so many people say, well, the last time I got a flu vaccine, I got so sick after it. And, um, you know, I know everybody here on this call knows that that's a myth. But do we maybe want to talk about um, some ways to talk to people that have that vaccine hesitancy? Vaccine hesitancy um, kind of is on is on a spectrum, 
right? You know, so there's some people that just have some questions and that's okay. It's okay to have questions about, you know, medication. And then there's that spectrum that just, um, you know, are really against kind of any vaccine, um, et cetera. So what I like to do is I like to talk to them kind of one-on-one, you know, make it kind of a private conversation um, so that we're just, we're having communication between the two of us. And I'm really kind of listening to what their concerns are. Are there, are there questions that they have that I can, you know, easily address? Um, for example, in those situations, um, you know, you, you can sometimes hear them say, you know, I had a flu shot and then I got the flu. And so, you know, we can talk about that and approach it that these flu vaccines cannot give you the flu. They are in, in the flu shot is an inactivated vaccine that it is not possible to give them the flu. But every year, you know, we do have the flu circulating that can cause, you know, that illness. And so, you know, can we correct that misinformation? Is there, um, you know, addressing their vaccine hesitancy? Are they, you know, afraid of just chemicals kind of in general and want to live that natural um, holistic lifestyle? And I think that, you know, certainly within their lifestyle, you know, there is room for this, for this very life-saving vaccine. And we talk about, you know, we don't want to be having um, and, and getting the disease, you know, of influenza, which is much more severe that this virus is kind of ravaging, you know, in our body, you know, creating, you know, um, creating this, you know, infection and, and inflammation, you know, that's not really, um, you know, holistic. That's not really, um, you know, kind of that clean lifestyle either. So, you know, let's talk about um, putting risk into perspective and, you know, overwhelmingly the flu shot, you know, is, is best for them. Um, you know, what can we do? Can we, can we let them know about some reputable, you know, kind of sources to get their information? And there's a variety of them. You know, there's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's Immunization Action Coalition. You know, there's lots, there's a wide variety of sources that are reputable for vaccine information. And um, there's some that are not, you know, so we definitely want to make sure that we kind of um, avoid those and ask them, you know, where they're getting their sources. But um, as Kate talked about, those stories are by far the most impactful. So, you know, did they have a bad experience, you know, um, you know, with, with a doctor that maybe didn't listen to them before, you know, or those type things. And so what can we do to kind of move forward and how can we let them know that to protect them and their family, you know, this flu shot is very important because stories like that do exist where, you know, this, this serious illness and this death could have been easily prevented um, by a vaccine. That's how I address vaccine hesitancy. And it's, it's, um, it's really kind of individualized, you know, person by person. I think influenza vaccine has like unique challenges because it's required every year, you know, like for it to be effective, there's a new one every single year. Right. And so the efficacy of that vaccine kind of, you know, it changes year by year. Um, and then the other thing that I think it's important to note, like I've been an infection preventionist for a long time, right. Um, more than 10 years. So within my career, um, the respiratory viral panel has become something where we can actually see all the different respiratory viruses that are um, circulating throughout the year. So influenza A and B are just two of those viruses that are circulating at any given point. When we do a respiratory viral panel, I think Dr. Hankins could probably tell me what's in it now, but there's more than 10 viruses in that panel. So at any given point, you have other respiratory viruses that are circulating. It's very easy to then see, you might not have had the flu. You very well might've had, human metanumovirus or uh, standard coronavirus, that can happen. And I think the other thing is, yes, yes. And so I think the other thing that we have to not dismiss is vaccines. They, They challenge our immune system. 
you might not feel 100% the day after you get your vaccine. You might feel a little worn out. That's a normal response. When I get my, I've gotten a vaccine every year for as long as I can remember since nursing school, um, I plan to get my influenza vaccine always on the weekend when I know I'm going to have a little more downtime and I can plan for that. And so I think we can't dismiss the, the idea that, you know, I didn't feel very good after I got my vaccine. It wore you out. That's what it's meant to do. You know, your immune system's working a little harder. And so um, talking about personal experiences and just addressing influenza um, vaccine itself. Um, remember when we make flu virus vaccine, we're predicting what will be circulating later in the year. Sometimes that prediction is not accurate. Sometimes we come up with a recipe that doesn't actually cover for what's circulating because it's a prediction. You know, it's a bet every single year. And so um, there have been years where it was a mismatch. I'm a person who definitely got very sick one year when there was a mismatch. And so um, that experience didn't make me lose faith in the vaccine. That experience made me understand, um, you know, just it's science and we practice science. It's, you know, it's something that we do our very best um, and we hope for good outcomes. When I'm talking to someone about vaccine hesitancy, and I think Rebecca touched on this a little bit, I'm really trying to um, make sure that they're aware of what we're trying to avoid. Because um, often, as y'all have mentioned, oh, someone says, I get the vaccine, and then afterwards, I didn't feel good at all. And you could not feel well as a reaction to the vaccine. You could not feel well if you got any number of other respiratory viruses that exist. Um, or a bad egg salad. Or, yeah, or bad egg salad. Yeah, Dan, but if you find great egg salad, let me know. Um, <laughs> let me know that place. Um, but most importantly, <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that they're aware of how bad influenza could be. Um, if we see so many people hospitalized on a ventilator in the ICU from influenza, and I'm not sure that that's something that people are as aware of. Influenza, we, we think of influenza like, oh, it made me have a fever, I felt ill, I stayed home, I got better in two days, and then I went back to, my, to life. Um, but influenza can cause that, but it can also end you up in an ICU for weeks needing respiratory assistance from a ventilator. And so that's what I'm really trying to avoid by giving people um, the influenza vaccine. And so um, Kate touched on, you know, sometimes the vaccine misses, um, but ideally if, the, if you get the vaccine, either it's preventing you from getting influenza or making it so even if you get influenza, it's not as bad as it could be. And so that's what I'm trying to really make sure that people are aware of how, how bad things can be uh, with the disease itself. So we're not comparing like, oh, if I, we're not making this comparison of vaccine versus nothing. We're making the comparison of vaccine versus illness. And so we need to understand the illness to really understand what the vaccine is uh, protecting us from. Those are all really great points. And there are just a host of resources out there if you need them for vaccine hesitancy. And we will post some of those in the show notes. So if you are needing resources about vaccine hesitancy, um, you can click on that link in the show notes and it will take you to our webpage. Um, you can also call us at our hotline if you have questions about vaccines um, or any of the uh, blowborne pathogens that you may come into contact with in your practice. So you can always call us or email us. 
ICAP, can you remind us how we call you? Absolutely. So you can call into ICAP at the main hotline number, which is 402-552-2881. You can also email us at NebraskaICAP at NebraskaMed.com. We would be more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Well, that was an outstanding conversation on hepatitis, on vaccines, on hesitancy, on effectiveness, all of it. We want to uh, thank all of our uh, participants today, including Dr. Hankins, Kate, Sarah, and our special guest, Rebecca. Uh, This is Dan, and we look forward to having you again on the next Mouthy IP. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office. 